Uh, as many of you know, I came to faith while traveling with a gospel choir as a fill-in bass player and sometimes mediocre second tenor. We traveled all over the southeast playing at churches and conferences and some other little events and things. And on most nights, the choir director would actually ask one of the members of the choir to share a little bit of inspiration, maybe share a little bit of their story, uh, and, and then about our college. And it usually went really well, except one time it didn't. Um, it definitely didn't. There was a young lady uh, who was asked to share, and she was kind of channeling a little bit of John the Baptist's directness um, and was apparently bothered in that place by what seemed like a lack of enthusiasm on the part of this particular congregation. <laughs> so just for context, occasionally we'd play churches that would sing and they would clap and they would sway with us, you know, because there's a choir, we're doing this. And even some of the churches, in particular the black churches we would go in, they'd dance in the aisle, man. And that was fun, that was a lot of fun. And often we played some churches where the enthusiasm was there, it was tangible, but it was more reserved. Sometimes we actually just had to stare into faces that kind of conveyed what felt like disapproval. Like, are we, should we not be swaying, right? Or, you know, is it, are we too loud? Was, some, was the question too expressive? Were we singing the wrong music or the wrong kind of gospel music? And we usually wondered what, which it was. And this congregation fit that more dour description. And so for a few minutes, the young lady with the microphone, she shared a really enthusiastic witness to the goodness of God. She talked about the power of music and of worship and our, and, and our goal as a choir to really hopefully inspire and encourage. And as she was talking, she's staring into these blank and kind of dour faces. The volume and the pitch of her voice started to increase. And then she finally said it. Why are you here? And when I tell you that it wasn't exactly gracious how it came out, just I want you to try to picture me, um, someone who's not actually easily ruffled by confrontation, just trying to shrink behind my bass guitar, which was relatively easy because I was skinnier than I am now, you know, then than I am now, trying to hide behind my bass guitar or find a hole in the to sink through. It was that cringy. And it turns out the director got an earful from the pastor after our performance, and I, you know. It, it, it didn't go well, and I, I can't remember if it happened, uh, you know, she shared before or after we raised the customary offering, but I'm hoping in retrospect that it was after uh, that that she, she shared. So uh, here's the thing. Think about this. It wasn't really a bad question in itself, was it? Like, why are you here? Like, let's think about it. Why almost never is a bad question, unless it's the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong place and in the wrong way asking the question, right? But objectively, in that particular setting, it's reasonable to ask, or at least to ask oneself, why am I here? Am I there to worship or just to watch, to criticize, or to support, even if it's not my kind of music? Right? And you might even say, why is a question worth keeping at the forefront of all our so-called religious activity? Are we checking boxes? Are we keeping up appearances? Are we motivated by a kind of fear or approval or, or seeking approval? Are we looking for a moralism that sort of fits our orientation to the world or a legalism that maybe we think sort of fits our performance? The list goes on, right? But here's the thing. The list has to go on with grace because every last one of us is actually prone to getting our motivations out of whack, aren't, 
aren't we? We're, we're prone to that. Getting them mixed up, bent out of shape, because life will do that to you. Life is like that. We have to ask, why am I doing this? And as a, let's just call it a professional spiritual person, I mean, I don't like that, but this is my job, right? Um, I, you know, I have no small influence on others. I have to evaluate my motivations all the time, and I do that. But after all, Jesus often put his own disciples on the spot about their motives. In Matthew 11, he once asked the crowd that was following him why they actually went out in the wilderness to listen to John. Was it just to go see a spectacle? Or were you looking for something more? Another time, he asked them if they were just following him for the bread. That could feel, ah, right? Why? So as we look at this passage in John 1 today, and we're here with John the Baptist again, beginning of verse 29, I think we can benefit from asking why, actually, John the Baptist's young disciples, two of them, Andrew and, this is a different John, most likely the author of this gospel, why do they decide to follow Jesus? What did they hear that prompted them? What was it that motivated them? What did John say about Jesus that prompted such urgency? And maybe it would serve us, actually, today to identify with them, a little bit and consider the first words that, I, that came out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel, which were, was a question. And I think for which, a question for which we're all trying to locate the honest answer. And what was that question? What are you looking for? And there's a deep why beneath that, right? What are you looking for? In verse 29, and you can, I'm going to move through these a little bit if you want to just kind of follow along. In verse 29, John sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And, you know, we translate it, behold, the Lamb of God. You know, it sounds kind of theatrical. It's, but he's literally just exclaiming, look, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. He says it again the next day in verse 35. So we're going to return to this all-important phrase. It's really, really important. But this first time that he says it, we get some elaboration, don't we? He elaborates, he makes it absolutely clear to them in this moment that the Jesus who has been fully revealed to him, revealed at his baptism, is now actually superseding him. Which, humanly speaking, is a hard moment. But for him as a prophet, this is reinforcing that God is at work. And so he says in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. You get your history right, your Bible chronology right, you know that John was older than Jesus. So in other words, he's saying this man is more important than me because he existed before I did. And I came to understand, to understand that when I baptized him. It's clear that he's referring to Jesus' divine preexistence. So according to verse 31, you know, Jesus was still in question for John. But then as he baptized Jesus and he saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, he knew he was the Son of God, or in some manuscripts, the chosen one, the elect one of God, the one. And this is what he was, John was meant to be looking for so that he could faithfully fulfill what he understood was his mission on earth, the Isaiah 40 mission, right? To be the one in the wilderness crying out and then baptizing others for the Messiah's arrival. And John was now fully aware at this moment, 
fully aware that his baptizing ministry, though, was a precursor. It was the first of the baptisms, the outpourings that God had in store. It was a precursor. He knew that it would be superseded and surpassed by another baptism from heaven. This is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A baptism from heaven that the Messiah would bring. So let me just pause for a minute, uh, just a little bit of a side thought for you, and and so many of us in here are new to this tradition. Um, Let me just pause and talk about baptism, considering that there's this passing of of the baptism baton, so to speak. And I know some people and some traditions, we, we kind of get wrapped around the axle about how we should or should not baptize. How should it be done? Should we immerse? Should we sprinkle? Should we pour? Since the Greek word for baptize initially meant, before it sort of evolved, immerse, like literally immerse, isn't immersion the right way? Shouldn't that be what we do? And since it symbolizes a death and a rebirth, doesn't it most, wouldn't it most closely make sense for people to go under the water and then come back up, emerge anew symbolically as a new creation? Those are all valid questions. But, and, and most of you know this, I think we immerse and we pour. It just depends on the time, the place, and the person. But here's what I want you to know about pouring. And I just, uh, you know, we don't talk about it a lot, so I wanted to put this right here because it it ties in with the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The pouring of water over one's head, it actually brings together the two dimensions of Christian baptism. The instrument of water as the means for baptism, but also the action of the Holy Spirit coming down upon the one being baptized. So we're enacting that. uh, And we're we're trying to convey and also experience that in that moment, even as that person is being baptized, the Spirit is coming down upon them, as in Jesus' baptism and as, you know, at Pentecost. And so, you know, just to, to make the point a little clearer, you know, Peter actually made this immediate connection between baptism and the Spirit's reception. Again, we're talking in the realm of mystery to some degree, right? Like we can't see it and point to it and say it happened and this is what I felt and this was, these were all the things um, that we can measure. But in Acts 2, 38 and 39, this is what Peter said. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, This is what pouring demonstrates, so to speak, just in case you've ever wondered. Now, that was for free. Moving on. In verse 35, Jesus is walking by again. It's the very next day. And John responds with the same exclamation, though it's abbreviated. He says it again, the thing we sing every Sunday. Behold the Lamb of God. And then, of course, we sing, as John said the day before that, the one who takes away the sin of the world. But he says it a second time, behold, the Lamb of God. And so there's an important emphasis here, and the weightiness of this proclamation really can't be overstated. And I think it's what clearly tipped the scales for Andrew and for John. Why? Why would it have? And it may be obvious to you, especially because we read Exodus 12 today, but let me just offer three angles on, on, on the background, what's going on here. And first of all, John undeniably sees Jesus as the one that's prophesied um, by Isaiah eight centuries prior to this. The suffering servant lamb 
of Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm gonna read you a bit of that, um, and many of you, again, will be familiar with it, and it's the focus of our Good Friday service. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So there it is. Throughout history, the church has never wavered from that, this connection between Isaiah's lamb and Christ Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Acts 8, there is an Ethiopian eunuch who's riding along in his chariot. Philip joins kind of the entourage that's there, and the eunuch is reading this very scripture, and he asked Philip, he, he, he said, who is this about? And Philip told him, Basically, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus and told him more. And then he baptized him right there on the spot. Probably immersion, maybe pouring. Maybe he was halfway in and pouring. We don't know, but either way, he was baptized in that place. So this prophetic connection grounds Jesus' self-understanding and our subsequent understanding about his atoning work. We call it the atonement. His, his recovering that which was lost and his repairing that which was broken. Which, you know, it's our relationship to God that was lost. And the divine image that we are meant to bear as his children was broken. This is what he restores in his atonement. And so that's the first angle. We find ourselves Isaiah 52, 53. The second one we have in our reading today. Roughly five centuries, even before Isaiah's words, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And many of you know the story. Exodus 12 describes the first Passover by which the tyranny of Pharaoh as an enslaver, systemic culture enslaving people, it was broken. And at God's instruction to Moses, the blood of a lamb was to be instrumentalized, let's say, by, by each family, each household, so each Jewish household, so that they could actually be distinguished from Egypt. They could participate in distinguishing themselves. And so that they could avoid this forewarned judgment that, uh, you know, that was falling upon Israel or Egypt for 400 years of cruelty. So then with the blood smeared on their doorposts, provision was made for them. This is important because they weren't going to be spared from judgment, apparently, due to their distinct ethnicity, simply how God felt about them, their history, their station, or even their beliefs. It was only by the means that God provided and in which they participated that they would be spared. It was a life to be poured out, the blood to be poured out to take away their guilt too. So here's the third and final angle. Isaiah 52, 53, Exodus 12, and then we already get a hint of it as they're going to renew these practices. In Exodus 29, God called Israel's priesthood to renew 
uh, in remembrance the offering of a lamb both morning and evening. No, this wasn't just, it wasn't the Passover once a year. This was a perpetual offering to recall this Passover, um, but also, here's the thing, to provide a kind of vigil, inviting, welcoming, hosting God's presence. It was a mediation for God's promised presence. Beginning in verse 38, it says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year, uh, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell with them. So here it is. If you're trying to imagine yourself as Andrew and John, what might be welling up in you in this moment. John, the baptizer, was proclaiming nothing less than the fulfillment of and the end of Israel's ceremonial and ritual practice of acknowledging their own sin and the priest doing this for them and, uh, you know, through this atoning sacrifice. But here's what he's proclaiming. The story was being renewed and expanded and moving forward in Jesus and Jesus alone. To punctuate that point, you know, and I don't think anybody brought their Greek New Testament, but let me just trust me here. John includes five definite Greek articles in verse 29 to make the point. We don't translate it as clearly as it actually is word for word, but we could literally read it in this way. Behold the Lamb of the God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. So do we need to wonder why Andrew and John respond as they do? The picture is being coming clear. It's all coming together in Jesus. The baptizer is declaring that the story of Israel, the story of the whole world, in the terms already set by Yahweh God, it was now coming forward through that one right there. The Lamb of God. Andrew and John get the picture, they get the point, because here's the thing, that's where their story is going now too, isn't it? As the Lamb of God, Jesus is going to take upon himself the collective burden of humanity, the guilt for all the corruption, all the chaos that's perpetuated by, you know, very often even our best ideas, by our rebellion in the end. The guilt from which no one is exempt will be taken away. And in its place, an irrevocable provision and a perpetual invitation to receive it. As Paul would tell the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter five, he said, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us that message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, look, everything necessary is now provided in Jesus, the reconciler, the Lamb of God. We have only to accept his appeal and to enter his provision to be willingly reconciled to the reconciler. Or to put it another way, 
come and see. To believe that Jesus is the direction that our story, that all of history is heading to. Now, as Andrew and John catch up to Jesus in verse 37, he asks them this. What are you seeking? Again, Jesus' first words in John's gospel. What are you seeking? And I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss this at all. This is really the question of humanity. The impulse beneath all of our wondering and our longing and our striving. What are we looking for? What's our definition of fulfillment, of redemption, of belonging? What does acceptance look like? What do we need for healing? What about peace? To be free of bitterness and to be free of envy. What are we looking for when we're looking for love? To make sense of the senselessness of the world's just perpetual cycle of pain and corruption. Are we looking for a way to live well in spite of this ache of fear and of loss and of life's unpredictability? and of our mortality. What are you seeking, Jesus says. How do these curious followers of Jesus answer? This is important. With a question. And I think it's poignant for us. In fact, I think the Holy Spirit inspired that moment, that interaction between those two fishermen and the Lamb of God so that it would actually echo through history to us in this way. Because they're not asking him the technical question of, hey, where do you live? They're asking him, where can we find you? What are you seeking? Well, where can we find you? And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't give them his address. He doesn't give them his itinerary. Well, here's where I'm going to be at such and such a time and such, you know, such and such a place. No, he says, come and see. Come and see. Come and be with me where I am. With Jesus, an inquiry becomes an invitation. And it, I think it always does. It always has to because we, we have all the questions. And whether we've tapped into what they really are and what they mean, we have all the desires. So their question is, in a sense, providing the answer to Jesus' initial question, but leaving it powerfully open. Think about this. What we're seeking, even if we're not certain how to identify or express it, it's found wherever Jesus is going to be. Wherever the story is going. If the core question of evangelism and of discipleship that's put to all of us is, what are you looking for? Then the core answer for all of us is really, well, where are you going to be? Where are you going to be? And the core response of Jesus, even to our most tentative, even to our most self-protective posture and questions, it's an invitation. Come and see. For each of us, for all of us together, with our various doubts and our fears, the invitation to him is irrevocable and it's indispensable and it's primary. We may not have all our questions answered. We probably won't, especially if they turn out to be conditions for Jesus. But living our lives for Jesus will always be a matter of living our lives with Jesus. The primary purpose and identity of the church is to be a place hosting the presence of Christ. Do you know that? So that people can come and see. So that we can again drag ourselves, you know, 
in here and come and see and be with Jesus. And this is why Jesus shared the Passover with his disciples in a way that necessarily brought the story of sacrifice and remembrance to him so that it would continue through him and through us. He brought it to a table and he, he promised that through the bread and the wine his followers could be with him, that we could come and see every week, that we could come and taste and see every week, that through his body, his blood, by the last, by the best lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, that they, that we could commune with him together. We could point our desires, that we could point our feet, we could point our own stories in the direction that the story is actually going. That we could look, that we behold, and that we could receive. And so Village, I just think this, the question for us as a church, as we grow above all questions, is not how open we are to whomever the Lord may call to Village, though that's important, not how true we are to our tradition, certainly not, you know, are we as Anglican as we could possibly be, and does Seth or Hannah get all of the hand motions right when we celebrate the Eucharist? Not important. Are we a style? Are we a substance in a certain, you know, that, that people are looking for? These aren't the questions. The question really is this, for us and for really for every church, is this where people will find Jesus? Is this where he's staying? Can we say come and see, not that they come and see us, that they come and see Anglicanism, that they come and see you know, a church that's young and vibrant and growing and on the west side and doing some good things, and et cetera. We want to host the presence of Jesus because the answer to what we're looking for is really sort of finds its way toward another question. Well, where are you going to be, Jesus? Where will you be? There's no shortage of welcoming churches in Greenville. Thank the Lord for that. But the quality of that welcome depends on this question. To what? No, to whom are we welcoming them? Because all the hospitality, friends, all the humanity in the world won't make a bit of difference for the lost. It won't make a bit of difference for the lonely if all we're doing is inviting them to ourselves and to our idea and to our expression and to our social sensibilities into our sentimentality. And a Jesus who at best is an idea or a role model. That ain't what he is or who he is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come and see. Maybe we can try to answer the question of why we are here and why anyone should want to be here with us simply with that very thing. Where's Jesus going to be? And my prayer for you, for us, is that he's always here. And that's our main preoccupation all the time, that the presence of Christ is here. No matter what we do or how we do it, that what matters most of all to us and ultimately to those whom the Lord may bring is that Jesus, that we are absolutely posturing ourselves to host the presence of Christ. Full stop. What's our vision for 2023? To host the presence of Jesus and to say to our city and to your friends, and to those in our neighborhood, come and see. He's here. This is where he's staying. I hope that's your heart too. And I hope that the Lord will help us as we ask the question of why we're here. I hope that the Lord will help us keep this front and center. And that we will continue to host his presence. He promised that he'd be with us if that's what we want. That's what I want. Is that what you want?